like you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Peter Lehman. Um, I'm part of the teaching team, but probably most of you know as uh, know me as the husband of uh, my lovely wife Priscilla over there. Uh, <laughs> um, so probably what was just passed out was this piece of paper, which I'm told is the scripture for next week. So uh, I hear that what you guys are doing is trying to kind of stay ahead of the sermon so that we, uh, you had encountered the word before someone comes and preaches. And I was told that last week uh, you received the scripture that I'll be talking about today, John 2. And if you had a chance to read it, uh, you would know that it was about a big wedding goof. Uh, and <laughs> that's a really relatable experience for a lot of, uh, a lot of married people. Uh, you know, we, we spend months and months uh, preparing and planning and kind of perfecting what's going to be happening during this really special day. Um, and then inevitably, there will always be something that goes out of control, uh, you know, crazy and, uh, and silly things uh, always happen. Um, a lot of you guys uh, were, uh, came to my wedding. Some of you guys were even part of it. Um, and I thought it might be kind of fun to share some of the wedding goofs that happened during my wedding that you may or may not have known about. So I don't know if the pictures are up. So here's the, yeah, here's the first one. Uh, there, I, I actually, I got a bunch of them, so I'll go through them pretty quick. Uh, so first uh, wedding goof happened uh, the day before the wedding. Uh, we, uh, me and my uh, um, uh, dudes went to men's warehouse to get our suits fitted. Uh, we did that months ahead of time, and then the day beforehand, we go and we to get our suits together. Uh, and when we arrive... Uh, we all are trying on suits, making sure it's all right, maybe making tiny little tweaks. And my older brother uh, goes and tries on his suit and finds out that his suit is, uh, or his pants are about 12 sizes too large, wide, and deep. And, and it's just like the gigantic clown, clown pants for him. Uh, and it, it was a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, a stressful situation, but uh, they, they offered, okay, they're going to expedite the pants and he'll get it the next morning. Uh, <laughs> and, luckily, and unfortunately, they didn't, uh, he didn't get it. Uh, immediately, so we had to take kind of an initial set of groom's pictures, the top left, and then the bottom left. Here, I'll even point out my brother for yeah. <laughs> uh, my brother kind of snuck in right there for the, for, the, for the later pictures, like right before the wedding when he, he, got, he got his pants. Second uh, story, go on the next slide. Uh, this is, uh, Priscilla and I had a special kind of planned first look, you know, this, this ceremony where you try to not see each other before the wedding, uh, and then, uh, like at one point, you kind of get to see each other for a few little pictures, then you kind of separate again before the actual wedding. Um, so we had this planned and orchestrated for us to kind of be in different dressing rooms and wake up in different buildings and, and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and so everything was kind of uh, planned and orchestrated, and I was just kind of being escorted from one place to another with like you know, a posse of people walking around making sure everything was fine. Um, and so as I was being escorted to this uh, pretty location, uh, I realized I needed to use the restroom. Uh, and I didn't want to take all these pictures having to use the restroom. And so I, I asked, like, hey, can I, can I go to the bathroom first? And, and uh, you know, the people kind of walk around and they kind of ask questions, like, is it okay, is it okay, is it okay? And then I get a thumbs up. I'm like, okay, cool, I'm good to go. And so I'm walking to the restroom. I walk to the little hallway right in front of the restroom. And then I see a flurry of white and peach cloth. And then the voice of Priscilla's friend, Stephanie, crying as one casting out a demon, get out! And, and I, I, you know, I'm super flustered and afraid and scared, and, but, and, <laughs> and it was a little, a little disconcerting. But I, as you can see, uh, by the time we finally got to see each other, everything was fine. Uh, we're, uh, <laughs> no, 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 more, uh, no more fear. Uh, <laughs> so we can go to the third one. Um, so this one's actually uh, my fault. Uh, do you ever get the feeling where, that you forgot something and don't remember until it's too late? 
yeah, that, that definitely, I had that feeling throughout the entire, entire wedding process. Um, one thing that was supposed to happen after uh, Priscilla and I were proclaimed, you know, man and wife, uh, and, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Layman, whatever, uh, there was supposed to be a glorious uh, uh, soundtrack of, of chariots of fire, just like blazing forth as we would prance down the aisle towards our new life together. Um, and I had uh, planned, I put it on the playlist, I put it on the schedule, I talked to make sure it was good with Priscilla, and, uh, but, but alas, uh, as, as we are being proclaimed man and wife, I remember I did not tell the DJ. Uh, the one person who needed to know, no one else really needed to know this, except for him, he did not know. And so as we're standing there, in just silence, looking around, we decide, okay, let's improvise, and just kind of like hobble down in silence. I, uh, we can go to the fourth, fourth one now. Um, so, uh, <laughs> part of dealing, uh, having our uh, wedding at this church building, the deal was that we had to get our catering through their like special catering services. They had like a kitchen and all sorts of stuff, and so we had you know agreed to that, and we paid kind of the fee that was required uh, per person we were expecting to come. Um, and then kind of the the months started counting down towards it. And we didn't hear any menu. Uh, we didn't hear much response. And the, the months would dwindle down to weeks, would dwindle down to days, until the day before the wedding, uh, I was told that Priscilla got a call saying, hi, um, the person in charge of catering your wedding disappeared. Uh, <laughs> here's your money back. Good luck. <laughs> and this was uh, a, a bit of a, fran there was a frantic Google search, and alas, Chipotle came and swept in and saved the day with his beautiful burritos. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, la last one. Um, so uh, another, another plan was that our exit, uh, uh, we would, after the whole reception, all the fun stuff and chatting, you know, Priscilla and I would go back to our separate dressing rooms, change into some more comfortable clothes, and then kind of walk out while everyone blew bubbles at us. Um, uh, and, and so my part, what I had planned was uh, I would have one of my groomsmen return my suit for me so that I can just enjoy my honeymoon. And so I go into my dressing room, you know, ch change out of my, my suit, my groomsman scoops it up and kind of goes off, and then I look around and I see there's nothing for me to change into. I'm in this dressing room all alone, the entire outside, and there's nothing for me to do. I, 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 I don't know, I, I, I'm shocked, I'm paralyzed, and I'm just like, God, help me, I'm alone. <laughs> and, and luckily, uh, a groomsman comes back, and you know, I, he, he helps me out, uh, and goes and finds the clothes and brings it to me, and, and everything's fine. But, um, <laughs> so behind the scenes with all these wedding goofs, uh, there's always people uh, helping uh, in the background, kind of helping smooth out these goofs so that it can still be a good memory. You know, those groomsmen's and bridesmaids and wedding coordinators and kind friends all helping out a, out a whole bunch. And so today we're going to read about Jesus kind of being uh, someone who kind of smooths out uh, this big wedding goof that happens. Uh, let, let's go to the next slide. Um, <laughs> all right, well, let me pray for a bit and then we can read, uh, read this passage together. Um, Father, I ask that as we read your word, uh, would your Holy Spirit be uh, in our hearts speaking? Uh, would you soften us to things that you would convict us of? Would you encourage us in ways that you would want to encourage us? Would we know your love uh, through this story? Um, help us uh, pay attention and help me not, get, uh, not to get too sidetracked. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let, let me read this for us. Uh, it says, 
on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to, them, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there uh, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, uh, the jars with water. And they filled them up uh, to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out and take, uh, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Uh, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, uh, this the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The word of God. Can someone bring my water bottle up for me? Thanks. So what I was told uh, was that last week, uh, you guys studied about Jesus in the wilderness, the temptations, and you've uh, kind of learned, uh, been following the story of Jesus. Um, uh, first was, uh, you, know, you know, first maybe about his birth and about, you know, him being baptized and the temptations. So let me just kind of catch you up to what happened since last week to happening now. now. Um, so, this, so after the temptations, Jesus kind of comes back to civilization and starts talking about like, hey, the kingdom of God, it's here, it's ready, it's awesome, get ready. Um, and then he starts calling disciples, you know, saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And different disciples, or different individuals, decide to become disciples of Jesus. Um, in particular, there's uh, John the Baptist, uh, who you, you earlier read about baptizing Jesus, sees Jesus and, is, and points him out saying, hey, there's the lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world. And the people who are following John's like, oh, I guess I'll follow him instead. And they, and they kind of go and they follow Jesus. Um, and kind of right before this story occurs in John, uh, Jesus meets Nathaniel, who's a little skeptical of anything good coming out of Nazareth, uh, maybe prejudice, maybe just kind of uncertain, um, but uh, Nathaniel's super impressed when he meets Jesus, and Jesus makes some like big promises about heaven opening, and angels flying around up and down, and how it's going to be, uh, how he's going to see greater things um, to come. And so that is immediately what happens to the story. And so uh, it, it seems like a couple days have kind of gone by since this uh, story occurs, and it starts um, with Jesus at a wedding, uh, which is a pretty interesting place to find Jesus, since. Uh, for first of all, uh, this story is not in any of the other Gospels. And then second of all, we don't see Jesus at weddings anywhere else recorded. We see him at uh, funerals. We see him at, <laughs> on boats and uh, at you know, dinner parties. We see him uh, you know, uh, walking around tombs and, and in leper colonies. But we don't really see him ever at a wedding again. It's kind of strange. And it's even more strange because Jesus loves to talk about weddings. He uses the analogy of weddings all the time. Like he talks about how the kingdom of God is like the wedding that everyone said rejected their invitation to. He talks about how uh, you know, people should celebrate how he's around in the same way people celebrate when the groom's around before he gets married. Um, but interestingly, this is the only time we actually see him at a wedding. 
kind of strange. And it was probably also strange to some of his disciples who had been previously following John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who lived out way out in the wild, ate bugs and wore rough clothes. Uh, John the Baptist was not the socializing, hanging out in fun wedding parties kind of guy that Jesus is. And so there's probably a little bit of shock to them who probably expected Jesus to be like John 2.0. Um, so a bit, of, a bit of a contrast we have. But here Jesus is, regardless, at this wedding. John um, doesn't tell us who invited him, doesn't say whether Jesus had been planning for a long time or a short time to come to the wedding. He's just there. Um, he's there enjoying his time uh, when the goof happens. They run out of wine. Um, now, there wasn't any wine at my wedding, um, but from what I re- read, wine was kind of the main variety of drink, kind of the special treat they would have for special occasions. And at my wedding, we had delicious little ice cream cups, and we had sparkling apple juice and other special treats, but they didn't have a lot of those treats back then. And wine was kind of the, the really special thing you brought out to show, that, uh, show how, how important an occasion was. Um, but it was more than just a delicious treat. Uh, it, it had a representation to their culture. Um, it, it was a sign of celebration. Um, and, it was really dis- and it was really important for the groom um, to show that he could provide for his wife and, uh, and that he was able, responsible enough to plan well for his wedding. And so to run out of wine in the wedding, it would almost uh, indicate that maybe he wasn't ready to get married financially. And maybe, maybe he wasn't a responsible guy. And it, it would actually have casted some major shame and made him look really bad. Um, kind of, a, you know, this is a bigger deal than some of the silly wedding goofs where people might feel awkward or kind of funny or whatever. Um, you know, even though I'm sure everyone would have been sad we would have had, we, if we ran out of food, it, it, uh, our culture kind of doesn't well, put that same weight uh, to that. Um, I think a, a better modern equivalent would be something like the husband or the groom or the bride showing up really late to the wedding or not showing up at all. If that happens, you're like, something's wrong here. <laughs> Maybe they shouldn't get married. Uh, <laughs> or another kind of big kind of... Uh, uh, moment would be like if, uh, if the family of the groom or the, or the bride were just unhappy at the entire time or refused to participate. If, if you saw that at a wedding, you would wonder, like, are things okay? Should they get married? Um, and it would actually look really bad on, on them. And it's, it's this, this running out of wine is more of that magnitude than it is, you know, having no music to walk down the recessional to. Uh, <laughs> And so the situation, and so the, what's at risk is them starting off their new life with this hanging over their head, with everyone in the community knowing what had happened. Um, and so in this situation, Jesus' mom comes to inform uh, you know, Jesus what's happening. They're out of wine. And Jesus' response feels really strange. You can even see it. Uh, is it right here? Let's see. Uh, pre- yeah, go to the previous slide if you could. Thanks. It, it, it looks really strange. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Okay, so that, that kind of inflection I put on woman, that probably was not what he, he, how he said that word. Uh, in Texas, in kind of you know, redneck uh, culture, uh, w- woman is used as a derogatory thing you'd say to your wife or some other female who, who is doing something that's displeasing you. But uh, pr- probably a better translation for that would have been like ma'am or like some kind of term of respect, but like one that's like not your mother. Uh, something you say to someone who, uh, yeah, you kind of have some distance with, uh, which is kind of strange. Uh, then he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And part of the reason why I think this feels strange to me is because every time I read a story, 
uh, about Jesus, I'm assuming Jesus is the hero, that he's just going to swoop in and save everything. And so for Jesus to say, like, this isn't my, uh, this isn't my problem feels really weird. Um, but, you know, perhaps Jesus wasn't seeing this situation like this. You know, it says, um, you know, we, we know that in context, Jesus just recruited some disciples and that he's here with them. So maybe what Jesus was more concerned about, rather than orchestrating this event, was like building some deeper relationships with them. And that's what he was focused on. Um, you know, and in addition, um, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Um, and throughout the book of John, the kind of phrase, the hour, is used kind of to denote like the time or like the, the, the moment. Um, you know, he later, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, talks about like the hour is coming when we'll neither worship on your hill or in the temple, but in our hearts. Um, and so he often just kind of uses it to kind of talk about like a certain moment that's going to occur. But there's only one other place that talks about Jesus' hour. So he, he doesn't say the hour uh, has it come. He says my hour. And then later in John, um, John mentions Jesus' hour. He says his hour uh, had come. And that hour was the hour of Jesus um, being crucified, being murdered. Um, and and I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to believe that Jesus knew that he, he was going to eventually be killed on the cross. There's tons of prophecies in Isaiah and other uh, older Old Testament that Jesus knew and studied. And he likely knew that this was, that was the trajectory of where he was going. He may not have known how many years it was going to take, but he knew that eventually he was going to die for the sins of the world. And, it, and he, he may not have really seen the connection between like this wedding party and this goof that happened and him like saving the planet of their sins. <laughs> um, he just may not have seen that connection. Um, however, um, something changes. It, it's, it's a little strange. Uh, it, it, uh, between where it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he says, and then it talks about the, these jars existing, Jesus then changes. He said, at the very last sentence, it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the, water, fill the jars with water. This, and this, is the, this eventually leads to the miracle occurring. Um, and, and, you know, believing uh, uh, Jesus as the Son of God who is perfect, I want to find some, like, sneaky way to show that Jesus is being really wise and clever and that he, he intended to solve this problem the whole time. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's, it just isn't there. John, out of all the Gospels, does the most commentary, constantly talking about, like, Jesus does something, and then John's like, he was doing this because of this. Or, or like, or like uh, you know, or uh, even at the end of this passage, at the very end, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did a Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory. And so John is constantly kind of interjecting, like, a little bit of commentary of what he knew at the time, but he interjects no commentary in this. It just, it just happens. One moment, Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? The next moment, he says, go fill it with water. And so the question is, like, what happened during those moments in between Jesus asking his mother what this has to do with him and him giving those orders to, to begin filling those jars with wine? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. And, you know, uh, interestingly, uh, we, we see a couple things happening kind of through this miracle. Uh, Jesus fills up these ceremonial jars that are not meant to be killed with wine. Uh, these are jars that were meant to kind of cleanse yourself before something really special happened and it had some kind of religious purpose to it. Um, and so Jesus is already showing himself that like he is way more interested in love and life than he is in tradition and ritual. Um, and we see that kind of continually through the Gospels that Jesus always says, I choose life. I do not, uh, you know, I do not uh, say no to life and no to love for the sake of ritual. But that's just a foreshadowing of what's to come. Um, and then we continue, and we see that neither the groom 
or the master of the feast to actually find out about, like, Jesus doing this miracle. Um, and, and, you know, kind of wonder why. Um, you, uh, you wonder if maybe the servants were embarrassed that they just, like, broke this rule by filling up the water and they didn't want to get in trouble. Or, <laughs> or maybe they, uh, or maybe, you know, they just didn't ask. Maybe the groom was just like, whew, crisis averted and not going to ask where that came from. I know that's what I would have done at my wedding. <laughs> but uh, they just never know about it. Um, pretty interesting. Interesting. So back to the question, though. I, I kind of jumped over this, but I want to come back for a moment. Um, why did Jesus change his mind? Why did he move from saying no, or that what does this have to do with me, to giving his orders? Um, and really all we can do is look at the passage and then just kind of try to read between the lines of what's happening. Um, you know, I, I think you know, maybe, um, we, maybe the reason is um, Jesus was... Uh, heard his mother and decided to respond to, to her. Because um, Jesus is not just about, you know, his plans and strategy, but he's about loving relationships. And part of loving relationships is to respond when you hear. Um, maybe uh, Jesus later talks about everything that the Father's doing, he's doing. Maybe in this moment, um, Jesus had a, was listening to the Father, and the Father prompted and saying, like, do this. Uh, and maybe he was responding to that. We don't know. But we do know that Jesus responds. And we can, and we can put that... Uh, in the bank. So the question is, what do we learn about Jesus in this? These are not stories that are just anecdotes that are giving us good morals to let us know how we can live a better life, um, but rather this is a narrative describing the most important and amazing character throughout all of history. So I think the first thing that we learn is what I, I just mentioned, is that Jesus um, is responsive. Um, he, he listens and that he does something in response to it. Um, when he mentions that my hour has not yet come, I think that's, that's denoting that he has some kind of plan um, for what, what's happening. And even though, um, even though the, uh, him doing this miracle may not fit in that plan or doesn't really make sense to that plan, he listens and responds um, first to his mother um, and I believe also to the father who is prompting him. Even though Jesus did not have to listen to his mother, you know, he, he clearly made it clear that, uh, that he's not uh, her, her son, or he's not just a little kid following her around anymore, that he's a, he's a man and that you know, he's, he, you know, he's, he's left the house now, um, but he chooses to respond to her anyways. And I think this means two things for us. Um, first, it means that our prayers matter. If Jesus listens to us and responds, our prayers are not just for our own well-being, though I believe they are very much for our own well-being. Our, and our faith is not a fatalist belief. We do not believe that everything that happens is just the will of God and that we just can't do anything about it. Because Jesus continues to teach again and again, saying, ask, like, like a kid asking his dad for some food, ask the Father and he will give it to you. Um, and we see that God changes reality in the course of history in response to the prayers of his people. Not because of special magic power, but because of relationship. During my time in, in East Asia, we really only had two plans for how to spread the gospel and make Jesus known. The first was to, spe was to spend um, enormous amounts of time with these Chinese students who committed to our program. So I, I, like, without exaggeration, I would spend about 11 to 12 hours like nonstop every day with these students. With a few days, that was like a little bit of break. But we would spend huge amounts of time you know, 
eating, learning, exploring, playing, um, talking. Um, and that was part one. Part two was just to pray and pray and pray. Everything that happened off of every day, we would pray for those students. Because we couldn't have special gospel events. We couldn't have church services. Uh, we were there out of the invitation of the university. And um, we weren't really at any risk, but we knew that if we did any kind of big explicit event that the university probably would get in trouble and they would not invite us back. Um, and they may even ask us to leave early. And so we really all we could do was just to be, uh, build relationships and to pray. And, uh, you know, it, I, I it, it would have been easy uh, if, uh, to just do relationships if everything went smoothly, if every friendship was just like perfect and we just set like glue, but not every relationship was easy. There was lots of bumps and barriers that we faced. Students who uh, mistrusted us because of us being American, and even more when they found out that we were Christian. Um, students that um, just felt like they didn't belong and, uh, and had kind of conflicting personalities and just like just didn't want to be there. Um, students that were very distracted by people of the opposite gender and just wanted to impress them while not actually engaging in real relationship. And these are things that like we just like, how do we fix these things? Like how do we overcome these barriers? Um, and so all we could do was, was pray. And so we were first just praying once a week, and then after the first week, we were like, this is not enough. And so we started praying uh, in the mornings as well. We, we would meet Monday through Friday to pray over uh, our relationships, to pray over the people that we were going to be meeting with. A lot of the students had roommates, and so we'd pray for each student's roommate uh, and like ask God to please work in mighty ways. And I, I was really awed uh, to see... Um, God actually doing that, like seeing breakthrough moments happening in very unexpected places. Um, I'm okay on time. Uh, so one, one story uh, that, that happened was uh, there was these two roommates who would never get along. They couldn't find anything to do, like connect with each other. And a breakthrough moment happened when one student was listening to his iPod and was just kind of humming to himself. And the other student kind of comes up to him. And I, I don't know if he was a little annoyed or what, but he's just like, what, what are you doing? And, and the American student's like, well, I am... I'm listening to some music and, and like singing. And then I don't know if he's like joking or like teasing, but he's like, do you want to sing with me? And then Chinese student looks at him and he's like, yes, I really want to sing with you. And then they spend the next two hours singing songs on his phone together. It's just like bonding. And it turns out that student, even though they thought they had nothing in common, that student loved to sing so much. And so they ended up finding this new like breakthrough of, of friendship that like no one thought would have imagined or be able to strategize with. And so God just did all sorts of things like that to kind of break through build a relationship, and then give opportunities to share the gospel. There's even a time when some Chinese students were like, like, you guys are Christians, do you guys do Bible studies? And the American students were like, yeah. And they're like, do you want to do a Bible study? Like, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, without having to pressure or to push these students, we even had a chance to, like, study the God's word in a kind of private setting in their own dorm room and be able to talk about Jesus. And that, that didn't happen because of some excellent plan or because we're really personal people. Well, let me tell you, a lot of people who came were pretty awkward people, like me. And it was because of the power of God that made that work. Um, so I, 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 that, that's, that's one thing I think we, we learn. And, and if there's anything that I learned from that time in China, it was that. But um, relationship goes two ways, right? So we ask and God responds. And I believe God asks for us to respond, too. Um, God gives us invitations every day um, through the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus doing this miracle here wasn't part of his plan, but he was flexible. 
And if any plan was done by someone perfect and smart enough to not have to be bent, it would have been Jesus' plan. But he does it anyways. How much more should our plans be held with loose fingers? Waiting for, the, waiting for the Father to give an invitation and for us to respond. To linger for a moment um, in a conversation. To share encouragement to someone who you haven't noticed before. Um, to give generously, more generously than God has put in your heart than you would have otherwise. The second thing we see about Jesus here is a little ex- less explicit, and I haven't really pressed into it as much um, so far. But it's, uh, it has to do with how the master of the feast responds when he finds the, the wine. Um, uh, is it the second slide? Yeah. Uh, no, go to the next slide. Do it. Thanks. Um, so we see that he responds by comparing what most people do at weddings, which is bring the first stuff first, the be- or the best stuff first. And when people are either drunk or just full or just kind of distracted, they bring out the kind of cheap stuff or the watered-down wine. Um, but in contrast, Jesus brings out the best at the end. When, when it looks like there's, when things are actually empty and there's nothing left, that's when Jesus brings forth something that's even better than what there was to begin with. And I think this comparison mirrors the narrative of the world versus the narrative of the kingdom of God. The world says, enjoy it while it lasts. And I see this so much in the university setting. Even at Baylor, which is a, which is a Christian university, this narrative is just constantly being said. There's, there's uh, the acronym I'm sure you've heard called FOMO that's constantly used, which is the acronym is Fear of Missing Out. And students t- talk about it as if it's like a daily occurrence. Like, oh man, I got some big FOMO today. Or, or, they'd, be like, or they'd be saying, hey, did you have FOMO yesterday? And it's just kind of this constant fear that they're missing something um, because they believe uh, they're told that this is the best four years of your life. And if you miss out now, it's all downhill, man. It's all gonna be, you're going to have to be a boring adult after now. So you know, live it up. Have fun. Get a good experiences. And so they, they, they struggle and desperately cling to anything that can seem meaningful in relationships and in fun and in experience. Um, and... and um, yeah, out of fear that, that after this it's just all bad or it isn't as good. Um, the, and then the other side of that coin is students who uh, work really hard at their studies and push themselves and push themselves because they want to have the best grades and get the best degree and have the best job so that they can, uh, it, so they can enjoy the best material comforts before they push themselves into the grave. Um, and there's a lyric from this folk um, indie artist uh, named Sufjan Stevens that I feel like encapsulates this fear really well. Um, he, he writes in an album that's mourning uh, the death of his mother, um, the lyrics, uh, what's left is only bittersweet. For the rest of my life, admitting the best is behind me. Now I'm drunk and afraid, wishing the world would go away. What's the point of singing songs if they'll never even hear you? And, and in contrast to this, Jesus' story is so much different. With Jesus, the best is always yet to come. Even when things seem their darkest, Jesus has the power to redeem and bring new life. And we see this when he talks about the my hour. We see this in the story of his hour, the story of his hour, which was the hour that he was betrayed and tortured and murdered. And for the three days afterwards, his disciples felt like it was all over. The, that the last three years of their lives were going to be the best, of the, uh, the, the best years of the disciples' lives. 
and that all that was left of them was bittersweet memories of the man they thought was the Messiah. But then Jesus is resurrected, and he shows that what he said was true, that the best is yet to come, and that, uh, yeah, and, th- and that he can always bring life, even when things seem at their darkest. And, you know, it's clear that the, the best here isn't always wedding parties. It isn't always drinking good wine. Um, even in John 16, Jesus says, uh, in this world you'll have tribulation. But then he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's, that, that's really my encouragement for, for, for you today. Um, even when things seem at their darkest, take heart. When running out of wine feels like crazy trivial to the pain and hopelessness you're experiencing, take heart. With Jesus, the best is yet to come. So in summary, um, there's two things I want to I um, talk about how we can apply this. Um, first is continuing to ask for what you need. You know, I know some of you, this might be a new, weird kind of thing to do. Uh, you're used to just kind of watching things go by and just trying to make it through. Um, let me encourage you. Jesus hears and responds. Just like he responded to his mom, he responds to us. And it's worthwhile uh, asking him. Second, uh, or, or maybe you've uh, been praying, asking God for a long time. Maybe this is not new for you. Maybe you've grown up saying prayers to God. Um, and it feels like you've been saying the same prayers for a long time and you haven't heard any, ask, any answers. I, I know how that feels. I can relate with that. Um, you know, uh, right now, I, I'm in a season of, of discernment, asking God what direction going next. And I've been praying again, like, God, give me a calling. God, give me a calling. God, give me a calling. And I'm not hearing anything yet. And it can feel, like, really disheartening sometimes to say a prayer and then get no immediate feedback. I mean, I feel like the, the, the speed of Jesus responding to this request is pretty fast. And sometimes it feels like, oh, man, what's taking you so long, Jesus? Um, but, but the motivation for us asking is not are the immediate feedback we get from God. That's not what encourages us to ask. We ask because we remember who God is and what he's done. I continue to ask because I remember what he did in China, and I remember what he did a year ago when I was struggling with depression. I remember that God does answer. And I encourage you guys, see and hear that God answers, and remember all the ways that God has answered you in the past, and let that continue to encourage your long-suffering prayers, because God will answer, and he will respond. Um, next uh, thing to do as well, I, I encourage you to be um, aware of where God might be prompting you. Aware of where uh, God is working in your lives and where he might be inviting you. Um, the number one question I've been asking my students this semester, almost every time I meet with them, and I'm sure they're a little annoyed by it by now, but it's really important, is where have you seen God at work in your life? Uh, every week we'll say, all right, we had, we had a Bible study last week. Where was God at work? Or I'll ask people, like, how are you doing? Where was God at work? And I think that awareness of where God is at work allows us to be more sensitive to his invitations to us and allow us to experience some awesome, amazing things that he has for us. Let me, uh, let me pray. Um, Father, um, thank you that you are bigger and, and stronger and better than any tribulation that the world can throw at us. Thank you, God, that the, world, that the best is always yet to come with you. Thank you, God, that you promise to respond to us. And thank you that you, in, you invite us to be part of your work in our lives. You, inv- you invite us to partner with you with the amazing bringing of your kingdom to this earth. God, I ask that, um, that you would help us take heart and to trust you 
in the way that we ask, in the way that we listen. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.